welcome to episode 51 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today uh, by Jason Weinstein, uh, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal computer crime prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. Uh, Jason, uh, uh, what are you working on uh, this week? Actually, this is a very heavy white-collar uh, internal investigation week. Not not a lot of data security work this week. All right. Uh, and uh, Ed Crowland uh, from Steptoe's International Department, uh, who will be talking about uh, the Cuba sanction changes. Uh, um, Ed, is that uh, what's keeping you busy or uh, something else? Uh, yeah, Stuart, thanks. Uh, yes, definitely Cuba sanctions are, are front and center, but I would say uh, 2014 was very busy with sanctions across the board, and 2015 promises to be the same. Yeah, it's the, it's the uh, retaliation of first resort when the president says has to say, I did something about this. Instead of uh, sending drones, he uh, announces new sanctions programs. Uh, uh, and today we have two guest commentators, Thomas Ridd and Jeffrey Carr. Uh, uh, Thomas is the professor of security studies at King's College London and the author of uh, Cyber War Will Not Take Place, as well as a paper on attribution that we'll be discussing. Uh, um, uh, Thomas, welcome to the program. Thank you. Hi. Uh, and what is keeping you busy? Uh, uh, defending this program uh, on Twitter? <laughs> defending this program on Twitter? Kept me oh, busy, right. busy yeah, yesterday. Not the yeah. program, sorry. <laughs> defending your paper on, on Twitter. No, no one, I, I would never ask you to defend the program on Twitter. <laughs> okay. And uh, Jeffrey Carr is the founder and CEO of Taya Global. Uh, uh, Jeffrey, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And what are you uh, uh, working on? I bet I know, so go ahead and tell me. Oh, well, you probably don't. Um, we're actually building a product that we've been working on a product for the defense industry to help them identify who, who specifically, uh, is looking to breach their network. So. All right. Well, you're, you're going to tell me at the end that you're also working on a new Suits and Spooks conference that's coming up in a couple of weeks. I certainly will. All right. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and the record holder for returning to step to practice law more times than any other lawyer. I apologize. Practically everybody on this uh, um, program is on uh, uh, the phone because we're spread across two continents, and I am in California doing some uh, cybersecurity work uh, uh, as well. Uh, so let's get started with the uh, news roundup. Uh, um, I think, you know, probably the biggest news or the least covered big news uh, is the details that are emerging on this secret DEA phone log database. Uh, uh, I, I, I find it fascinating. I don't know, Jason. Did you take a look at that? Um, I did. I, I found it less fascinating because I knew about it when I was in the government. But 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 even as an outside observer, I, I think there's less there than the than the headlines suggest. Um, what Stuart's referring to is the Hemisphere Project, uh, and there was an affidavit unsealed in a federal case in Washington State last week that provided more detail about the program. The reason I think, Stuart, that it's not as much as, as the headline suggests is that there's this uh, hyperbole comparing it to the NSA programs, to 215 and to PRISM, and I think that that's, regardless of what you think of the DEA program, it's, it's grossly overstated. It's limited to toll records, uh, to overseas calls, uh, and, and then only to specific countries, whereas 215 was all calls, including domestic. And, of course, PRISM was the content of, of calls. The DEA program simply uses 
uh, uh, streamlines the process of using subpoenas, which is a time-honored technique to get toll records. There's no subscriber information, no identifying information, and no content. Um, my understanding, although there seems to be conflicting reports about this, my understanding always has been that the data was stored by the provider, not by the government, which is, of course, what privacy advocates are, are suggesting should happen with 215. Uh, and it's simply queried based on the, the DEA's longstanding administrative subpoena authority. Um, so I think that the, there's a lot of rush to, to uh, suggest in the press that law enforcement is doing the same thing the NSA was doing, but I think that's, that's quite a leap. So I, I, I take your, your point, but uh, I, I'm going to uh, argue uh, uh, the contrary, um, because base at heart, this is saying we want to be able to make sure that uh, um, all the calls to and from a country have been stored. It's true they didn't store the domestic uh, uh, records, but um, uh, the kind of information that they're storing uh, – uh, numbers, calls, uh, you know, to and from, and the length of the call is pretty much what the uh, uh, NSA was gathering, uh, and they're doing it with um, the same theory, which is uh, uh, this is bound to be relevant uh, to some of our investigations because these are countries that we're uh, uh, we know have um, uh, uh, narcotics uh, uh, industries, uh, and kind of remarkably, they did it. With no judicial oversight at all, all the NSA uh, restrictions and oversight and, and reports and self-flagellation, there's just none of that. Uh, they just, uh, uh, on, under exactly the same standard, uh, is it relevant to an investigation, uh, uh, wrote themselves subpoenas, right? Well, you know, 24 hours in California, you turn into a privacy advocate. I, I almost don't recognize you. Um, no, no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just astonished that the uh, uh, the Justice Department uh, uh, was so chicken as to not say, you know, NSA got this basic idea from us. Uh, uh, we've been doing this since the '90s, which I think is the case. Well, I, I think the program has been in place since the '90s. I think that that um, you know, law enforcement, just like the intelligence community, likes to protect its sources and methods, but. But I think it's really um, designed to solve a simple problem. When I was a prosecutor, I spent a lot of time chasing drug dealers and gang members and other criminals who dropped their phones frequently to avoid uh, electronic surveillance and would complain loudly when the phone company told me that it would take three weeks, four weeks to get toll records, just not content, not subscriber information, just telephone toll records that I would need to identify a potential new phone and then start the process of building probable cause or trying to so I could get a wiretap on the new phone. And this was meant to, I think, address that problem, at least with with uh, uh, calls that were run through the AT&T switches um, and AT&T's own network uh, to streamline the process of getting that information. The legal authority is time-honored. You know, whether it's an administrative subpoena, grand jury subpoena, um, the law provides law enforcement with the authority to get toll records with a subpoena. That's There's, there's been no challenge to that authority for, for since it's been in place for decades. So they were simply using the authority they had. The phone company agreed under this program to make sure the data was available um, and to get that data to law enforcement faster. But the fundamental use of the authority um, is the same as it has been for decades and decades. So I, I, we've solved the NSA 215 problem. We'll just let DEA run it, uh, and then there'll be no oversight and no... Uh, uh, no complaints, and the Justice Department will defend it uh, uh, wholeheartedly. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, all right, so uh, let, let, let's move on to the next uh, uh, 
uh, uh, uh, victory lap uh, for uh, uh, people who had doubts about the whole Snowden thing. The EU is now moving on to, uh, after Charlie Hebdo uh, um, has announced that it's uh, uh, their, their chief um, uh, counterterrorism guy, Gilles de Kirchhoff, uh, um, announced that he thought that the EU uh, should uh, adopt legislation that would force uh, companies to uh, be able to decrypt the communications that they encrypted. Uh, a very aggressive uh, position, sort of similar to Cameron's. Uh, uh, and at the same time, the French announced that they were uh, trying to regulate, so they were proposing new regulations that would require social media firms to more aggressively monitor what's posted on their systems, which may be a response to uh, a similar criticisms out of Great Britain uh, of uh, uh, an unnamed uh, social media platform that uh, failed to identify the uh, guy who killed uh, um, a uh, uh, soldier in London uh, uh, two or three months back. Uh, um, uh, You know, that that was the... uh, 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 attack in the street with the guy who got interviewed with bloody hands afterwards, and uh, uh, a parliamentary inquiry uh, criticized the social media firm for not having uh, uh, a better system for identifying threats of uh, terrorism uh, that are posted on their system. Um, it looks as though Europe is uh, really in the throes of a uh, a, a new anti-American uh, uh, company uh, uh, spasm. Uh, six months ago, it was all about privacy. Now it's all about security. Uh, I don't know, Thomas. Uh, um, do you think this is uh, this is a true change of heart, uh, or is it just uh, well, we still hate the companies, we just hate them for something else? Well, I think it's. Bit too early to say what exactly it means. I'm, I'm, I think baseline attitudes in Europe have not changed. Uh, this um, shock, the Charlie Hebdo shock, will uh, probably move on at some point, and then we'll talk. We'll, the debate has not fundamentally changed. I would be conservative this, at this point. Yeah. Okay. So they, 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 uh, the debate has mostly been uh, how can we beat up U.S. tech companies, and I expect we'll we'll keep, we'll keep hearing that. Uh, you know, it's, it, I've, I've, whenever I'm on the continent, the mood is, of course, very different in the UK, um, post, post Snowden. Whenever I'm on the continent, especially in Germany, I'm just literally shocked by the amount of, uh, by the perception that essentially sees the, uh, the Americans, especially the NSA, obviously, as part of the problem, as part of the threat landscape, as one CTO of a major German car company called it in a meeting. I was part of. So it's quite a, quite a changed atmosphere over there. Yeah, they're they're convinced that the U.S. government is stealing their secrets, uh, presumably because they they can't imagine a government that isn't closely tied to the industry. Um, so uh, let's 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 take us an, another of the uh, headlines. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, telephone companies got a um, uh, cell phone companies uh, uh, and. Manufacturers and software uh, providers got into lots of trouble over carrier IQ, which was storing boatloads of information about calls uh, uh, in software without telling uh, people uh, about it. This is sort of now kind of a golden oldie of privacy scandals, but it turned into a major multi-district litigation, uh, and we got a 100-page decision uh, from the judge uh, 
uh, uh, in the last week. Jason, uh, uh, is there any broader lesson to be learned from what the judge said? Um, you know, perhaps only that uh, the judge reinforced the notion that there's no secondary liability under the Wiretap Act. And so there's a distinction between um, creating an environment in which interception could exist and doing the interception yourself. And that's really the basis on which the judge threw out the wiretap claims. He said that uh, essentially uh, the manufacturers installed the carrier IQ software on their phones and created an environment in which the software could collect the communications and other data from users' phones. But that wasn't the same as alleging that the manufacturers themselves seized or redirected any of the communications. So because there's no secondary liability and because the judge said that there were not sufficient allegations that the manufacturers themselves engaged in interception, the judge threw out the wiretap uh, at claims, although he did give uh, the plaintiffs until the end of March or third week in March to uh, to refile with new allegations. Um, he also at the same time threw out a bunch of state law claims for failure to name a plaintiff who was actually a resident of the state in question and certain uh, other claims uh, for various states for pleading errors. So there might be a lesson in how to plead a, a civil case properly here. Um, but I think that in terms of sort of uh, sustaining um, sustained uh, legal import, I think it's really the fact that uh, there's no secondary liability under the Wiretap Act. Yeah, which which probably will be a relief to some people, uh, although this kind of runs a little counter in spirit to the uh, um, recent indictment of the guy from Pakistan for basically uh, selling products so that you could uh, intercept communications. All right. Uh, I, let me let me ask you, Jason. While I've got you uh, about uh, the, uh, and we're talking about uh, decisions. There was a decision in the Eleventh Circuit in the Lab MD case, and it's another loss for Lab MD, but I think also probably not a uh, uh, not the most important uh, case. Uh, probably a pretty um, unsurprising result. Uh, uh, they lost on what stand, uh, the, 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 it was premature to be bringing a claim against the FTC until they'd gone through the FTC's, uh, uh proceedings. Uh, that's right. And so it wasn't surprising that they lost because they, I think they're 0 for the entire case. Um, actually they're 0 for the entire dispute because they, they moved to dismiss in the FTC and lost. They sued in DC and that case, uh, got thrown out and then they sued in Georgia. Uh, and the, the Georgia case was dismissed too, and this is the appeal from the dismissal in the in the Georgia district court. Um, and it's but it's more of a procedural loss here at this stage than a substantive loss. As you said, uh, the issue in the district court um, was that there was no final action by the FTC, so the the lawsuit seeking injunctive relief was premature. Um, the 11th Circuit uh, upheld the dismissal on the same grounds and just said that. It didn't have jurisdiction to hear the case because the FTC hadn't taken final action yet. So LabMD's recourse now is just to slug it out with the FTC on the merits, uh, and then it could it could seek further relief at that point. So not at all shocking that they lost, um, but not uh, tremendously significant grounds on which they lost. What I did it think was more they're, interesting. They're really stuck now, and and maybe properly so, with fighting with the FTC about whether the FTC had any security standards at all, or was just making it up as it went along. Uh, uh, in uh, charging that uh, LabMD had bad security. That's right. And, and on that note, I thought what was more interesting in terms of FTC news last week was the FTC released um, uh, something on its blog that was part of its effort to educate companies about what reasonable security is. And, and in the course of doing that, they announced that there are up to 53 settlements in data security cases and that they expect that number to rise. 
And an FTC staff attorney wrote on the blog a, a fictional text message session with an imaginary corporate executive uh, explaining what that executive's company should look for and trying to evaluate whether they had adequate security. Um, that's a clever way to deliver the message. I, I certainly, you know, I criticize the FTC a lot on this show, so I should applaud them for, for trying to find creative ways to give guidance to companies to the extent possible. And, and as I said, the, the text session is sort of a clever and quick way to absorb the information, although fundamentally, if you go look at the advice that's given, there are some specific tips that are helpful, you know, and, and sort of fundamental, strong passwords, encryption, segmenting your network. But the broader advice that they give, even in the, in the form of this, this blog and this text session, is really, you know, answering the question, how do I know if I have reasonable security with a kind of you-know-when-you-see-it quality, which is part of uh, underscores why companies are so frustrated with the FTC's approach and the lack of, of any firm regulation or, or, or I, think the FTC, I, I think the FTC's position is you know it when we see it. That's right. All right. Uh, last thing that I want to talk about or just about last uh, uh, is um, uh, the opening to Cuba and the change in sanctions uh, uh, from uh, from the point of view of people who provide uh, uh, technology, uh, internet access, uh, uh, software, and the like, uh, um, Ed, uh, I know the president's constrained by legislation uh, and that he wanted to probably to go further. But what actually did he allow U.S. companies to sell to uh, Cuba? Yeah, uh, thanks, Stuart. Well, he is he is opening up the opportunity for telecom and internet companies to engage in a broader array of services for interconnectivity between the United States, Cuba, and third countries. This is a change from some initiatives he took back in 2009. And both the OFAC, uh, the agency responsible for these sanctions, and uh, a parallel agency, the uh, Commerce Department, Bureau of Industry and Security, will allow sales of certain communications devices now to Cuba, where in the past they had to be donated. And so it's basically phones and t- tablets and uh, stuff like that can now yeah, be sold? Yeah, exa- yeah. Com- basically retail-type commercial communication devices, computers, tablets, phones, uh, those type PDAs of various sorts that uh, don't present any kind of national security issue for the government and uh, are available retail. So that's where they're going. Now, I have to say, you know, I think uh, – We've been here before to some extent, as I mentioned, the president tried to open up telecom with Cuba in 2009 and basically, you know, takes two to tango. And, and my impression is not much happened since 2009 because, you know, the, the Castro government wasn't prepared yet to do that. So we have to see where this plays out on both sides of, uh, of the Gulf, so to speak. Yeah, they should start flying some of those uh, Google balloons over Cuba, and then uh, then they could get the service without having to get permission. But uh, I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon. No, no, I don't think so. You alluded to a point I just wanted to pick up on, which is, you know, there's there could be some real good activity here for telecom companies, internet uh, connectivity uh, operations, but. Uh, you mentioned that the Congress has constrained the president, and I think what a lot of activity we're going to see in the next. Uh, few weeks is going to be by legal scholars debating just what exactly can the president do and uh, separation of power questions because that's going to be front and center here all right and and from the from the point of view of uh, uh, companies it doesn't sound like they're going to uh, 
make a lot of money in the near term, uh, at least until the Castro regime uh, opens up uh, on its side, uh, so that they are there really are two tangoing and not just one. Um, okay, and the last thing I would just uh, urge people to take a look at is there's a really interesting Pew poll on uh, um, uh, people's attitudes toward uh, NSA. Uh, uh, NSA hasn't really lost much ground uh, since the Snowden uh, uh, disclosures uh, uh, broke. Uh, and probably most interesting is that there is a dramatic fall off in respect for uh, um, uh, NSA, or maybe arguably the reverse. Uh, uh, for people, uh, uh, young folks, 18 to 25, respect for NSA is around 60%, um, and it drops with every age group uh, um, uh, up from that till about um, 40% for people over 65. Uh, it's uh, not clear what that what's going on there. Obviously, some of that is that Republicans have been more skeptical of uh, NSA than Democrats. Uh, if I had to guess, it's because it's easier to get people in a techno panic uh, uh, if they don't really know the technology. So the older you are, the easier it is to believe something terrible is happening to your data. But uh, it's a it's a fascinating little insight into uh, uh, how NSA is doing in the court of public opinion. So let me let me turn now to the interview uh, uh, and uh, uh, get uh, Thomas and Jeffrey to uh, uh, give us a quick overview. And maybe uh, Thomas, if you could give us like a two-minute uh, uh, summary of your paper to get the attribution issue going, that would be great. Yes. So if if, if you're interested in attribution, before we published this paper, I think there was no major study out there that looked at the attribution problem in a general way, not focused on a specific case, but in a systematic way. So we, um, that is Ben Buchanan, my PhD student, uh, and myself decided to try to do that. So we wrote this paper, attrib Attributing Cyber Attacks, published in the Journal of Strategic Studies just uh, four weeks ago. And um, basically... There are three assumptions that we um, that we think should be revised. The first is that attribution is mainly a technical problem. The second assumption that we think is wrong is that attribution is either solvable or not solvable. And the third one um, is that it's mainly dependent on the forensic evidence that you have. A more productive understanding of attribution, I think, is to, we, we put it in this punchline, we say attribution is what states make of it. So that applies on three different levels. Matching an offender to an offense, that's what it is, is an exercise in minimizing uncertainty on three levels. First, technically or tactically, attribution is an art as well as a science. Um, operationally, attribution is a nuanced process and not just a black and white problem. And finally, strategically or politically, if you like, attribution is really a function of what is at stake politically at stake. So just to drive that home, for instance, on the tactical level, if, if many of the questions that you, um, that investigators would have to ask if they look at the forensic, uh, available digital forensic evidence are very case specific. Uh, we could be looking at, you know, specific, of course, indicators of compromise, entry techniques, targeting techniques, infrastructure that's used, whether malware was modular or not, language settings, 
how stealthy it was. I mean, there's so many details, and there's no there's no catalog, there's no list approach to this problem. You have to have experience, you have to have fingertip feel, and um, so it's really an art. That's something that people we talk to, and we did a lot of focus group sessions with people, both in the private sector and the public sector, who do this for a living. Uh, people always said, well, you know, you can't generalize. This is a highly uh, specific task. So that's that's one of the big takeaways. Take so, it, the, obviously, the uh, uh, the hot issue, the, the the thing made attribution something other than a uh, a scholarly inquiry was the uh, debate over whether um, uh, the attribution to North Korea was uh, was accurate. Uh, um, and uh, your your analysis um, of the steps you have to take. Uh, um, it struck me. I'm just sort of sort of surprised that this hadn't been discussed uh, uh, more. Uh, but let's give Jeff, give Jeff a chance to uh, uh, offer a critique of uh, the paper and your approach to um, uh, attribution, uh, so we can begin uh, a, a back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Stuart. And uh, I'd like to also thank Tom uh, for his paper. Uh, it's a great uh, contribution. Um, I uh, purely coincidentally also published a paper uh, for NATO, uh, for NATO's um, CCPCOE organization on attribution uh, called Responsible Attribution, a prerequisite for accountability. And, and it's because of that, uh, we have two, I think, fundamentally different approaches to this. Uh, as someone who has done uh, incident response, or, or I should say as someone whose company has done incident response in the past, uh, in 2011, 2012, I know firsthand how difficult this is. Uh, the lack of, of, uh, of successful cases that have been uh, prosecuted, uh, when there are hundreds, literally hundreds, maybe thousands of attacks that occur every year, and we only have uh, one indictment against uh, uh, some Chinese PLA members, and we have one indictment against a Chinese businessman, and that, that shows you how difficult attribution is. Um, the, uh, the other issue is that there are fundamental flaws in the way that we conduct attribution in cyberspace. For one thing, there's a lack of differentiation. Uh, we do not have a way to differentiate between a state actor and a non-state actor. Uh, differentiation that has been done in the past has simply been done out of ignorance, uh, going all the way back to uh, the early 2000s, when it was believed by uh, uh, these large information security companies that if it was a financial crime, it was Russian or Eastern European or basically former Soviet bloc, and if it was an intellectual property crime, then it was China, and those were the two buckets, um, uh, and those are based on fundamentally flawed you know, assertions. So today, of course, we know that's no longer true, and yet we have no way of differentiating between well-funded non-state actors. All right. Well, let me let me let me let me bring uh, Thomas back in. Uh, I, if I understand it, the first point was there have there have not been a lot of successful prosecutions, at least of state actors, uh, uh, and that that shows that uh, we really can't do attribution well. Uh, uh, Thomas, your thought on that? Well, I think I'm not. I'm not sure this is the the appropriate response to a state actor prosecuting them. This, you know, the the DOJ, the Department of Justice, uh, and the FBI indictment of these five Chinese operatives was 
Um, very controversial publicity move. Uh, nobody really expected them ever to see the inside of an American courtroom. So it wasn't about the judicial process. It was about making a diplomatic statement. So what about the uh, suggestion that uh, um, uh, private companies were too uh, um, uh, cliched in their uh, uh decision about uh, how to attribute to say if they're looking for uh, credit cards they must be Russian mob and if they're looking for IP they must be Chinese uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah I think I think the way Jeff made the point of course we don't you know in the interest of time you have to be uh, somewhat simplistic just like myself but it was a bit too simple in the sense because attribution actually happened many times in the past of course it happens on a regular basis in the context of, of uh, computer crime but that's a different context. And um, it also, we have major intrusions where we, most people would agree that the attribution has reached a significant uh, a high quality. So one example is Moonlight Maze, 1998, 1999. The attribution to the Russian, to the Russian government even was, you know, relatively strong. We have uh, the Aurora case, the Google hack. Most people accept the evidence from Google that it was a Chinese intrusion. We have the uh, Unit 61398 attribution, first by Mandiant and then by the DOJ, and most people accept that also as, as solid evidence in the debate. Uh, so let, me, just, let yeah. me let me let me stop and ask Jeffrey: uh, Do you agree that those were, uh, you know, good, solid attributions? Uh, they might be. Uh, the, it, I don't think it really matters. I think what matters is that Thomas and that any of us, including Thomas, can only point to a handful when there's thousands. And it's and it's not we must not ever I believe accept that it's sufficient to simply make a declaration. That is not attribution. If that is allowable, then we are totally we're going to have uh, one nightmare after another uh, ahead of us uh, when it comes to repercussions for false attribution. You cannot simply say, "Well, this was China and that was Russia," and leave it at that. You have to be able to prove it. If you make the assertion of attribution, then it falls upon you to prove the claim. Why is yeah. that? Um, so, I think it's important to understand what drives the quality of attribution. When can we do attribution? And there are three things. One is time. How much time do you have? The second is what are the resources that you can bring to bear on a specific attribution case? That, that you know, skill, but also technical resources. And finally, how good is the other guy? The adversary sophistication. Everybody, most people make mistakes, and then you can catch them. So, you know, given enough time, enough resources, and enough mistakes, you can attribute. I think the idea that it is impossible just doesn't stand up. Right, and I guess I didn't hear Jeffrey say that he thought it was impossible. He said, yeah, those those might have been good. Uh, I, I guess he yeah. hasn't studied them. No, carefully. no, no, I, I'm not saying Jeff said that. Absolutely right. not. Yeah. So, so with, attribution is possible, but bad attribution is possible, too. Is that, that your position, Jeffrey? Well, of course, attribution is possible. Sometimes it is possible, sometimes it's not possible, but it's very difficult to do. Anyone who says that attribution is easy to do, and there are, and you'll notice that the ones who say that are in the business of doing it, so of course they're going to say that it's easy. Um, but you have to look at, where's the proof? If it's easy, why don't we have uh, this, 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 you know, Walmart-sized store of successful act, uh, cases? You know, where we, why, why can't we point to that actual hackers? Where is the corroboration between a group, a fictional group made up of technical indicators, 
whether it's called APT 52 or or uh, uh, Silk Panda or whatever it might be. These are invented groups. They're not real people. Uh, where, where is the human um, cooperation yeah. between the cyber uh, invention of a of a of an attacker? I, also, let me, if I may, just respond on the numbers. Um, and again, this is not against Jeff. I think he very much would agree with this. We are often duped by these large numbers, and this is an old trend that started in the mid mid late 1990s. That you know, you had these press reports about thousands of attacks per day, per week, and tens of thousands per year. But of course, that doesn't that doesn't mean high profile intrusions. The number of highly significant intrusions, and you know. Let's name an example. The number of, of attacks that, uh, that resulted in deleted data and actual damage in American companies. We're literally looking at two to three attacks that actually damaged data. So, you know, let's not, let's be careful with the large numbers. Um, the quality really matters of the specific intrusion. Well, let me, let me, let me I, I, I also uh, tweeted the fact that we were having this discussion and asked people to send questions that they'd like asked, uh, and I got some good questions. Uh, uh, Ralph Langner, uh, who uh, famously uh, uncovered the Stuxnet uh, uh, malware, uh, said, why is attribution important outside of the cybercrime context, where we're not, you know, should we bother to attribute attacks if... Uh, if we're not going to prosecute people, uh, uh, and Jeffrey has sort of made the point, well, you're not prosecuting these people, so why why are we attributing it? So, I mean, first of all, it, we could see the different consequences of attacks. So, human lives ultimately could be at stake. We've never we've never seen that in the past, but it's not impossible. Very serious damage, as in the case of Saudi Aramco and also Sony, just means you have to do something. Can't just ignore this. So yes, Ralph Langner is of course correct that if you're strictly interested only in defense, you probably don't need to uh, be able to attribute in order to defend, although it makes it easier sometimes. Oh, surely for, it does. Right? Yeah. Surely it, 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 yeah. it helps you to know the kinds of attacks that, that somebody you're worried about has been launching. Absolutely. But you need attribution for everything else. You need it for diplomacy, for sanctions, for any sort of you know, response, political response, or, of course, for, for, for a harder response that may be on the table at some point. So, Jeff, what, is it, what, what, what does this mean for you? You keep saying, well, you haven't had many prosecutions, but there are a lot of other things you might, that uh, a country might do based on attribution up to sure. and including go to war. Uh, well, sure. And uh, a lot of the attacks have been attributed, uh, but haven't resulted in criminal action. Well, here's a good example. So, uh, we spent, well, before I say that, let me say I agree with Ralph Lagner. Mm-hmm. Attribution is irrelevant when it comes to private companies. It doesn't matter who's attacking them, it only matters uh, how that they can defend or keep their intellectual property from being stolen against all comers. So like the Secret Service protecting the president. It doesn't matter if it's a Martian or if it's a German or, or, or if it's a member of Al-Qaeda. It's, they protect him against all comers. That's my view on, you know, corporate Attribution doesn't matter. For states, nation states, of course, it absolutely matters. So last, I think it was in 2013, when the U.S. was engaged in very aggressive uh, diplomacy against China, a lot of that was fueled by the belief that 90% or more of intellectual property theft came from China. Well, this this was an incorrect assessment. Even the intelligence services, uh, the intelligence agencies knew that 
other countries, Russia, Israel, France, many more countries were involved on a regular basis, and yet the private sector was making a ton of money blaming China, and China was in the news, and therefore that drove White House policy toward take a hard line in China. Well, when the time came that well, let me let me ask you, let me push you on that. Uh, yeah. uh, the, if if there were other people um, doing it, they were making themselves look like China, exactly. uh, and uh, they were making themselves look like China because China was doing so much of it. It was easy to draft behind them and get what you wanted for uh, for some other country, uh, and so probably China did deserve to become the the, the focus of attention. Well, here, but here's, but, and Stuart China, of course, does do a lot of it, no, no question, but so do many other countries. But here's the problem. When you, when you let your, 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 in a, for a nation state, when you let your diplomacy be driven by the business requirements of private industry that are making money by blaming China, and here in the U.S., we rely a lot, the U.S. government, the FBI especially, relies a lot on the private sector when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, and, and then your policy takes a hard line. Well, when you need a favor from China, like put a rain on North Korea, you know, you're not going to get it. Why do you or, think, uh, why do you think that there was money to be made blaming China, but not Russia, not North Korea, not India? I, I don't, I don't, I don't see that. Uh, well, I, I can tell you just from the breaches that I've been involved with that when, for whatever reason, when companies discover or are told that they've been attacked by China versus, you know, somebody in Turkey, it makes a big difference. They're willing to allocate more money. They think that somehow their business has been elevated in importance, that they are now the subject, the target of a nation state the size of China and not some Pakistani hacker or some Turkish, you know, or Canadian hacker. So let me let me let me let me give you a question that Jan Winter uh, asked, uh, which is uh, basically. How do you weigh the alternative hypotheses? Uh, how do you assign a probability to one hypothesis or another? Uh, and and uh, I'll, I'll ask Thomas uh, about this. In particular, it seems to me, and this this, this was something that Mark Rogers uh, wrote he wrote in one of his uh, blog pieces in response to uh, uh, a, a tweet. Uh, um, he said, uh, uh, you know, it. Could easily be that this is North, this is um, South Korea, uh, whose penetration of the North uh, um, a, could have been the, uh, a, a capability that the U.S. rode uh, on, or the South might have a reason to want to make the U.S. blame North Korea for certain actions. Uh, so he, he's still not quite convinced it isn't a false flag uh, operation. Uh, how do you address things like false flag and uh, um, uh, faking of evidence uh, when you're trying to do attribution? I, th I think one thing is extremely important to understand in this context. The, we, we're talking about different levels of visibility. An intelligence agency, especially a well-resourced and powerful intelligence agency like the NSA, will have more visibility into this space than any private company, period. That's just a fact of life. And, and you know, in fact, I just had a long conversation with Mark Rogers yesterday. He, he would make that same point. And, of course, you know, the NSA knows more about this case. So, by definition, they have evidence that they cannot make public. And, you know, everybody who understands the technology also accepts this fact that making some details public will, will burn your sources, burn your assets. So, you know, we can't have this discussion 
in a fully informed fashion in the public domain. That's just also a fact of life. And let me just point out some additional difference here that's extremely important to understand. In contrast to all other uh, international you know, crisis situations, let's make the example of the use of chemical weapons in Damascus um, and the, uh, you know, U.S. government accusing uh, Assad of using chemical weapons. That's an attribution here for you. But in contrast to all other cases, here we have an entire marketplace for second-guessing the government. Because we have a lot of people with technical experience, because we have a lot of uh, companies in that space, and also because you can get so much publicity by second-guessing uh, the technical ev evidence of um, uh, the intelligence agencies here and the FBI. And now let me say something that will provoke you, Stuart. I think to a degree that is a good thing, right? Because to a degree, because of that, we have a dynamic where we can just we, we achieve a higher level of scrutiny than we would have in other in other fields of intelligence, if you like. Well, maybe, so, you know, uh, the, the pros and cons. Let, let, me, let me let Jeffrey into uh, do this before I react. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, what's your sense about uh, how well the, uh, the government is handling these alternative hypotheses? And uh, uh, as Pono the thing said, uh, is attribution useful if it depends on evidence that isn't made public? And if you can't make it public, uh, uh, is attribution always going to be uh, uh, just, you know, the sort of thing you, you sit at the bar and disagree about? Yes, well, you can't. Uh, I've been alive long enough to know that at, at least the two major wars in my lifetime, both of both of which were started in large part because of intelligence failures: the Vietnam War, and the Gulf of Tonkin, and the Iraq War. That, to me, requires that citizens be uh, respectful uh, of their governments, but also uh, uh, be free to demand proof before we have another costly intelligence failure. And because I'm intimately involved in cybersecurity and the cybersecurity threat landscape, I know how hard attribution is. And even the best, even people with the best of, 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 of resources and the best of intentions, it's extremely difficult to get it right. South Korea, we rely a lot on South Korea for intelligence on the North. <clears throat> South Korea has had a recent scandal in their National Intelligence Service involving fraudulent evidence. So they, 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 the Economist published this report last year, which, which should be required reading for anyone who points to South Korea as, uh, uh, as a resource on what's going on in North Korea. It's not that they're 100% wrong, but they're also not 100% right. So how do you find that appropriate middle ground? You know, so I, 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 I guess I, I, one, one thing I think NSA would say uh, when, when people uh, uh, say, you know, the Folks you're relying on may not be reliable. They uh, they could be faking stuff. Uh, you can't be sure. They would say, "Gee, you know." And are you going to tell me how to how to suck eggs next? Of course, we know that. That's that's what tradecraft involves: is taking account of the possibility that somebody is lying to you for their own reasons and asking. How can we verify what they're telling us with independent information, including what we know about what they're saying to each other, uh, I, and from our independent sources? This is this is sort of tradecraft 101. I, uh, and and having uh, outsiders who don't have access to the information saying, you know, that that's a possibility, probably isn't telling NSA anything. It just is casting doubt on whether 
uh, the folks who are making these assessments are rudimentarily um, uh, competent. Can I well, make a point on intelligence just, but, failure? Yeah, yeah. Wait, just a minute. The, I'm not questioning, you know, uh, as I said, I'm not questioning that the NSA doesn't know what it's doing. I'm saying that they can do the very best job that they can possibly do and still get it wrong. And it's and when it comes to cyberspace, it's such a new field. It's inherently, it's inherently built upon a, a structure that is spoofable, right? Um, you know, I, I, I'm gonna. I, I'll ask Thomas to, to to get in on on intelligence failures, but I do want to talk about the spoofability because I think that's the fundamental yeah. flaw in the uh, the sort of uh, private sector criticisms of these attribution efforts. I agree with that, actually, absolutely. But quickly on intelligence failure, because this is also a very significant point. Bruce Schneier made the case also several times that, you know, we've seen Iraq, um, and couldn't the government just be wrong again? In fact, if you study intelligence closely, which we do here at King's College, the opposite is true. Because for three reasons. One, an intelligence failure so recently and so and such a devastating and, 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 and costly intelligence failure. By the way, there were others. 9-11, in a way, also was an intelligence failure. They mean you have learned lessons on the inside. You have reforms on the inside, intelligence reform, better cooperation between domestic and foreign intelligence, breaking down of the firewall between the two, etc. So, so, And also, thirdly, you have a skeptical president in the White House today who needs you know, solid evidence to be convinced, uh, as David Sanger pointed out in last week's brilliant interview, by the way. So for a number of reasons, I think if the president comes to the conclusion that, yes, in this case, he can actually point the finger at North Korea, I think he will probably have done his homework before that and um, and, 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 and sifted the evidence in a way that makes me have more confidence in the process this time than last time around. I don't think that President Obama would know a spear phishing email from a genuine email or would know how to look for an IP address that was a, not a, a proxy server. I, and it would be unrealistic to believe that he does. But he does surely knows how to get a debate among his uh, uh, advisors. And it took hopefully. five years to attribute the uh, Chinese cyber espionage attacks to China. Uh, he, he has shown that he's pretty cautious about this uh, uh, in circumstances where he thinks those consequences are significant. Well, uh, and, uh, I, I, and I like that about him. <laughs> I like caution. That's a good thing. Uh, this took, you know, in three weeks, they decided to, to make this announcement. Um, and, and for a country that they have, that the NSA has acknowledged, they have almost no visibility into uh, that's actually, you know, actually, the Snowden documents suggest that they do have visibility uh, into them. Uh, it's, well, they're, it's they're the, the one use of the Snowden documents that uh, Glenn Greenwald is appalled by. Uh, uh, yeah. they, but yeah. they, there, there was clear statements that they had gotten into the North Koreans, uh, yeah. uh, in part because of what they were trying to do to us, uh, and in part through uh, uh, riding on uh, South Korean efforts. Well, of course, they missed the death of the leader. Right, they missed the opening of a new nuclear enrichment plant. Well, I mean, but if they're, they're looking, if they're looking for attribution information on cyber attacks, they aren't necessarily, you know, you're you're, you're looking at machines at that point. You're not you're not asking about the death of a leader. I, right? I think I think it's fair to say at this point of the debate that most people who were skeptical um, in the beginning have come around and slowly changed their view on the attribution. 
And, you know, I had, as I said, I had this conversation with several people who were skeptical. And, in fact, I, I share their skepticism. It's good to be skeptical. But we've known, we, uh, Mike Rogers from the NSA, he revealed a couple of details. There's some, you know, through the grapevine details uh, out there that essentially hint, point to quite strong evidence. One thing I heard, for instance, was that... Um, in some some encryption keys could have been uh, apparently were useful crit, uh, intelligence to um, pinpoint the North Koreans in that case, and that would be very strong evidence. Yeah, I think I, I, I think it's true. I I uh, uh, invited a number of the most prominent uh, skeptics to double down or retract. Uh, Mark Rogers had uh, a uh, a nuanced response that I think. Uh, did suggest uh, uh, that he saw this as uh, a much uh, a more plausible case. Uh, uh, Kim Zetter from Wired, who wrote the article claiming the evidence was flimsy, just said she wanted a serious discussion and didn't uh, go one way or the other. Uh, uh, North Security said, well, we can't comment anymore, but uh, we stand by what we said, which I think is a, a way of getting out of the debate. And uh, then a uh, couple of people, Bob Graham and uh, uh, yeah. Dan Tentler sort of said, oh, Snowden, 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 uh, uh, but didn't offer any reason to be more skeptical than they had. So and it's I think you're right. Yeah. And it's important also to notice that there were people inside the FBI, and we know this because of their public statements, who were skeptical as well in the beginning and then uh, you know, came to change their mind later on. So let me, let me, let me uh, raise uh, kind of uh, as we start to come to the end of this, the, the, the point that I think is the most persuasive, and, and I've, I've tried to reduce this to Baker's Law, which is, uh, you know, our security sucks, but so does theirs. Uh, uh, the fact is, there's more and more data out there about all of us, including the attackers. It's harder and harder, it takes greater and greater discipline to uh, keep from letting that information leak out of your activities online. Uh, and to my mind, that means that the attribution problem is going to get easier and easier because we're going to have more and more data. Yes, we have to be careful about uh, um, uh, attribution, but uh, everybody makes mistakes. And if one mistake is fatal, uh, uh, it means that attribution really is getting substantially easier. Jeff, I, I can't believe you agree with that, so I'll give you a chance to tell me why. Well, here's, Stuart, this, here's the big picture for me. This is what frightens me. Uh, it is, it's possible, and in fact, I believe it's being done now for, uh, for, uh, for governments to run deception operations to make it appear as if an attack that, that originated in cyberspace came from a different nation than the one that it actually came from. So if, words, you, if you believe that, I, and I, 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 I grant you that that's a possibility, if you believe that, the way to deal with that is not to tell people, not to tell the world, all of the patterns that we use to determine conclusively attribution. Because obviously if you make those, if you make those things all public, people can, at considerable effort, but uh, they can, make uh, themselves look like the pattern that you're looking for. But if you keep the pattern, or at least part of the pattern, secret, then it's very hard for people to fake it, isn't it? Uh, well, it's, it's too late to, for, to a degree. I mean, the, the, the pattern that we look for, the pattern which is emulated both in the private sector and by NSA and the FBI, they're all, they all, it's all the same. They all use a set of technical indicators. 
none of which individually is supposed to be proof, but all of which combined supposedly is, is proof. My well, maybe. I mean, you know, I, I understand what you're saying is that there's a right. pattern of behavior and tactics and, 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 and tools. Uh, uh, but if, if you actually have pretty good ideas about certain kinds of tools or tactics that people use and you never disclose them, then it's very hard for people to fake that, isn't it? Uh, listen, if, if you can keep as much as you can keep secret, the better that you can do that. The, as far as I'm concerned, that's great. So, if Thomas, we, you, uh, you actually... Uh, yeah. We're skeptical about that. Uh, <laughs> because well, I am, and, and that's because, uh, A, because I believe that citizens should be skeptical of their government. I think that's a, a, a duty. Uh, and, B, um, that I, I have an intimate understanding of the landscape. So if we were talking about the physical world, I'd be much more uh, in line with the green without evidence uh, on, on an law enforcement or intelligence agency's assessment. When we're talking about yeah. this world, it's a different story altogether. Okay, Thomas, you're going to get the last word on this, uh, yes. so uh, go go to it. So, yes, attribution, Stuart, you're right, it's getting easier and more difficult at the same time. We have to live with that contradiction. Uh, we discussed that in detail in the paper, but let me point out something that um, you may not have thought about in this way before. So take, take the Snowden revelations and, and what they mean for the NSA. Snowden and this is um, it's not just a provocation, but there's actually a, some truth to that. Snowden, in a way, did the NSA a favor because he increased their perceived attributive capability. In other words, Snowden increased the deterrent value they have. Nobody's doubting that the NSA today is, you know, pretty good at what they're doing. Even even if the slides are overstating how good they are, mo most people think they're even better. Yep. So that, that's, a, that's a really interesting uh, observation here in the first place. But it also has a flip side. The NSA, I think very few intelligence agencies and intelligence agencies elsewhere uh, come close to the NSA's attributive capabilities. So if you have a conflict, um, an escalation in this space between third countries that don't even involve, uh, involve the United States, then I think the risk of false flag, the risk of misinterpreting the, the evidence and the facts is significantly higher because they don't have the same amount of experience, technical skill, insight, uh, infrastructure and whatnot. I think, that's, I think that's very interesting and you can think of lots and lots of places where uh, uh, false flag uh, uh, attacks could spur uh, serious uh, uh, military responses. Uh, yeah. uh, so a, a fair point. Uh, um, uh, Jeffrey, any any last thing to say, or can yeah. I uh, uh, ask you to uh, to tell us what uh, your uh, 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 what your next next conference is going to be? Uh, what can I ask you? When I, we're we're about to make ev some evidence public, uh, can, that is going to throw a wrench into the Sony uh, attribution, uh, but I don't want to, uh, can you tell me what day this... This, this will not be out before, to, before Tuesday and quite possibly Wednesday. Okay. Then I have to say that I can't, I'm, I'm not sure that I can disclose it here. Oh, just, just tease us with it. That's perfect. I, I, uh, okay, uh, uh, and if it comes out beforehand, uh, before we uh, run the blog post, uh, we will link to it, so be, for, be sure to, uh, uh, to let me know about it. I certainly will. All right. Uh, and Thomas, uh, do you have any uh, yeah. speeches? The final tiny point that makes attribution even more wicked and difficult is 
Who says there, that there is only one, uh, you know, one intruder in a specific target if it's a high-value target? Well, exactly. so many targets there's evidence that, that, that there may be three or four all uh, riding uh, you know, on top of each other. Absolutely. There's evidence for that. I've heard that many times, and that makes attribution even harder. Yes, it does. Uh, that, 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 that's quite fair, and I should say I have my own attribution failure. Uh, I tried to call out Scott Borg, uh, I, who's been a, a skeptic, uh, and uh, I tweeted to the wrong Scott Borg, so I have no idea where he actually stands <laughs> on these issues. So, uh, and and uh, how about uh, speeches, uh, books, anything else you want to tell us about? Books? Well, you know, I'm writing a book uh, called The Rise of the Machines about um, how how cybernetics turned into cybersecurity, and that should be rather exciting. There's lots of in-depth digging, FOI research, and interviews with interesting people. Terrific. Okay. Uh, and for the our listeners, uh, uh, just a reminder that the Cyber Law Podcast is now open to feedback, uh, questions, suggestions, uh, uh, abuse to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com uh, or if you'd like to leave a message uh, uh, that we can play on the air, 202-862-5785. This has been episode 51 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week we will be joined by Becky Richards uh, from the NSA Privacy Office and coming soon we uh, will have the famous uh, Vermont interview of Julie Brill from the FTC and after that uh, Nula O'Connor, uh, President, CEO of uh, uh, the, the uh, of CDT. Um, uh, that should be entertaining. Uh, uh, we like each other and disagree about just about everything. I hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.